turn now to look at God's Word from the Epistle of James in chapter 4. James 4, verse 13, into chapter 5, verse 11. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, for him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it, until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with anything or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no lest you fall into judgment. The precious word of God that alone is infallibly true and reliable, that we know that when we read it, we are reading the pure uh, truth of God. I'm sure you can tell from uh, the reading uh, which verses we'll be looking at together. Chapter 4, verse 13 
uh, to 15. And most of you will probably know these words quite well. Uh, where we're told in verse 13 that there are people who are saying that James hears, today or tomorrow we will go and trade and so on. But they do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is our life. And he describes what our life is and then tells us in contrast what we ought to say. We shouldn't say those things, but we ought to say, verse 15, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now in this passage of God's word, this short section, uh, people are making plans. And you can see that from the words that James hears this, obviously. In this context, it is particularly uh, the wealthy population of the visible church at the time that James is writing to. There are lots of congregations, probably, and he's writing uh, to them. And he's aware of a tendency in the different um, sections of those congregations. That's what the letter is about. There is um, the rich and there are the poor. And the poor are treated with partiality, being told to sit in other places and so on because of how they're dressed and these things. And James is writing, at least in part, to correct that worldly misunderstanding and that instinct that we have. And he says almost what his, what his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, said in that parable that we read, which is, so is he who is rich towards God. And that's really the point here, that some of these people have very little. They have no status, no possessions, but they are rich in the depth of faith, in growing knowledge of Christ and following Christ, rich in prayer, rich in humility and these things. James says that God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble, Submit to God, he says in chapter 4. Resist the devil. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So these are the rich things of God that the poor people in these churches, not all of them, that are proud poor people too, but the poor, he's saying, have riches that far extend from any influence in this world monetary riches and so on but as is the case when we have a lot as is the case for most of us in in our country now compared to some of these people we're all very rich it has this tendency of self-sufficiency pride presumption that we can control things that we can place our money here place our influence there give to this cause and not to that cause and be in our houses and spend much time making them perfect and so on and that just lends itself to a fleshliness and a pride and so on. And it, it leads to something like this, that it creates this spirit, even in a professing Christian, it creates a spirit that we say things like, today I will do this, and tomorrow, and in, in February I will do this, and in June I hope to have achieved this, and this is my plan, and so on. And James says all such boasting is evil, and we'll see why. But those people are making plans the poor can make plans too, but you can easily see how those who are well off make a lot of plans. They have employees, as we read there, and they're holding back even wages from the people who are working hard to make them rich, actually, and so on. So you see the kind of group of people uh, James is writing to. There's not, nothing wrong with having money if God has blessed you with it and you've got it in a godly way and you have endeavored to invest in your work and your job. 
not to the detriment of Christ's kingdom, Christ's church, your own family and so on. If you've put first the kingdom of God and then when you tally it up at the end you happen to have some money, there's obviously nothing wrong with that. Um, We see here that that possession and that power though can carry with it its own distinct temptations. And they are making plans. And it's beneficial at a time like this, at the end of a year, that we consider just briefly this morning some things about these kinds of plans. It's completely natural. God's built a clock into us. He's set the signs in the heavens for years and months. And we know that it's natural that a a page is turned at certain points. A new month comes and so on. And we mark time. And the year has come to a close. And we've spent a year in the sight of God, in his church, in our lives, professing the name of Christ. And it is good for us to take stock of where we are. And it's natural that we will make some plans. Everyone must plan. There's nothing wrong with it considered by itself. The Bible tells us that we must make plans. There's a wisdom and a godliness that comes with a certain kind of plan making. That's right. But it's good at the end of the year for us who seek to follow the Lord to look back at the year just spent and to look at the attitude we have at this moment to the year that's about to come. The kind of attitude we have to it and what plans we have and what we prioritize and so on. To take stock as we must do every week, but especially at the turn of a year, to take stock. What was that year like? What was my prayer life like? What choices have I made in that year? Why did I make those choices? What was valuable to me? What was given top priority in my life during that time? And to endeavor in the year to come, I'm sure that when, like myself, you analyze that, you find sin, you find omission, you find commission, that you look and you're not happy or satisfied with all that you are and all that you have done and planned and so on, and how you've spent yourself in the Lord's service. You will always find that. The only person who never did was Jesus himself. He's the only person that never had to look at a new year and say, this is what I must change. Everyone else, everyone in Scripture, all the faithful men and women that have lived for Christ throughout the centuries, all of us, if we have an honest look, will find things that must be set back right and put into place and to endeavor with more um, passion and more obedience and closeness to the Lord to live for him in a better way to be more faithful and more deep in our understanding of Christ, to be more with him, uh, to cut out some things that ought not to be priorities and to prioritize some of his things and the, the things of his kingdom and so on. So like I said, in this text, people are making plans. And there are two types of plan that anyone can make. And those are godly plans or ungodly plans. There's only those two types. And even if we're Christians, we can make what I would call ungodly plans. 
the godly plan seeks the Lord, obeys his word and the commands of scripture, that any plan that is made is in accordance with those commands and precepts. The godly plan is geared towards serving his kingdom and extending the gospel influence throughout the world. That's why we're here as Christians. The godly plan is concerned with sharing the gospel and putting yourself in a position where that's likely to happen and you can do it and so on. And the godly plan is humble and wants to serve Christ fully in whatever sphere he's placed us. Some of us are young, some of us are retired, some of us work, some of us have families, some of us are homemakers and so on. Wherever he has now placed us in the goodness of his sovereignty, where are you? Where has he placed you? The godly plan looks at where you are in that place and it scans around and says, what can I do for Christ in this year for the advancement of his kingdom for where he has placed me? The ungodly plan, as we see here, isn't so concerned about that at all, especially if the person is an unbeliever, if they're just outside of Christ. But like I said, for us, we can fall into, as you know, bad plans for wrong reasons and with wrong balances and so on. The ungodly plan involves, as we see in verse 13, providing for yourself or the people around you and profit and success And most importantly, it does not contain God in a real way. It doesn't contain the primacy of the gospel. It doesn't contain any real endeavoring to serve Christ. It will have that. You'll notice that in verse 13, they have this plan that today or tomorrow they'll do such and such a thing. They'll go to this city and then they'd say how long they're going to spend there a year. So we're speaking about a year here, a new year. We have a year. And they say what we'll do there. We're going to buy, we're going to sell. And they're even sure, and we'll make a profit. They don't say we hope we'll make, they're confident that this will work. But you'll notice there's no mention of asking God if they should go there, if they should move, if they should go and do this in such and such a city, or how long they should do it for. Um and whether or not it will be successful. Because someone who's really before God will not just presume that the thing they've planned, as long as it's done according to the way they've planned it, and everything is added up according to their knowledge and the way they've planned it, they say there'll be a profit at the end. God doesn't promise us that. That doesn't contain God. If we're close to God, we know, like John the Baptist and Christ themselves knew, that even if you're faithful to God and you're in the right place, and like John and Christ preached the right word and so on, they in their spheres, were, did they make a profit? Were they war, did they have worldly success? John was beheaded. Christ was opposed almost by the entire church. So even in the greatest people that have existed, this doesn't work. This is not godly. Christ says those who... Those who serve me, the world will hate them and so on. So how can a Christian make a very good profit or be a really successful business person presumptuously so and just say, as long as this model I have set out unfolds the way I expect it, then I will be successful. 
that shows that we're not considering the way God works properly at all. Because if we're there and we share the gospel in that city or with the people that we're buying and selling to, they may turn against us, hate us, and we may end up losing a lot of money or losing a reputation or even losing our job and so on if we stand for Christ. So you see how in verse 13, there is no sense at all that God is in their plans properly. Now, these Jews, Jewish Christians who say this, they would all say, I believe in God. We know that, that there is one true God, and they believe in the God of the Bible, and many people do. There are many people from the president right down through business, right down to the lowest people in our society, who believe there is a God, and even believe in the Christian God, and believe that God is in their life, and that they're involved somehow with God. But that does not mean that their life and their plans are godly. That it does not mean that they are necessarily planning in a godly way and including him as he ought to be included. And I hope we know that and we'll see that as we go on. So you have here the fact that there are such a thing as godly plans and there are such a thing as ungodly plans. And by ungodly, I don't mean that they're full of apparent and obvious evil. I just mean that God isn't really in them. They are un-God. God is not there or important or really governing visibly what is going on. They are not living for him in that way. So what is wrong with the plans that James mentions in verse 13? When he tells us about these plans, he says there's a wrong way of saying and thinking, verse 13, and there's a right way in verse 15. The wrong way doesn't contain God. The right way in verse 15 says, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So what is wrong with what they say here? What's behind why they say this? What is their view of life? that must be avoided, especially for someone who is not following Christ. But for any of us who are following Christ, we can fall into this kind of thinking. What about the view of life is wrong? For the life is to be given to God and given to Christ and lived for Christ, and Christ must be honored and given his place over that life What is wrong with these people's view of their life? And can we detect any of it in my heart and your heart as we look at the condition of our lives right now? What is wrong with their view of life? Well, they've not taken stock of basically what life is in this text. And James reveals that in these three verses. And I'm, I'm saying three things here about what life is, and they're all closely connected, that they don't take stock of. The first thing is that life depends upon the will of God, and and therefore it is fragile. It's not guaranteed and given to us, and it preserves itself. It depends fully on God's will, and it itself is fragile. Now, they say today or tomorrow we will go And we will do this, and we will do that, and this is our plan, and this will be the result. There is no mention there that they need life from God, or that God is sovereign 
over this endeavor or that they need to ask God's permission and guidance to do this. Life depends upon his will. And James tells us that in verse 15. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. If the Lord wills, these things may happen and he may bless us with them. These men don't understand that. That their life is entirely dependent upon the sovereignty of God. Life is fragile in itself, the life he gives us, and it can only be carried out effectively and lived as it is sustained by him. And only by his will can anything be done, even the smallest thing. For God is sovereign. He has an overarching decree over all that has ever taken place outside of himself. That includes the angels and it includes everything that happens on earth with men or women. The whole thing is bound in his immense and eternal, all-present sovereignty as the great I am, self-existent, fully sovereign, governing Lord. The angels can't do one thing unless the Lord wills that it be done. The fallen angels can do nothing, the demons, unless it is the Lord's decree and will. And our children and ourselves and our choices and even getting from A to B as we travel, every single part of it is part of that eternal decree as has been decided by God. He also has what we call a perceptive will from the word precept or command. He's sovereign over what happens, but he governs it all as it happens according to his own law and nature. So when we think about the will of God and say, what is God's will for me in 2020? The truly spiritual person wouldn't talk like this in verse 13. The spiritual person will say if the Lord wills, and we will be concerned with, is this according to his precepts and commandments? And have I asked him if he, if he wants me and has willed me to do this? And there's all kinds of choices and plans we can make without any thought of God's commands. Does this break his commands? Does this pull me away from the church? Does this mean it's impossible for me to find a good place of worship? Does this, um, does this mean I will break uh, the commandment to not steal? Will it compromise me in this company because of what they're doing that they take money from others? Is this company I'm working for, does it exploit people in other countries and use them? Is all the products I'm paying for and working for and so on, and the plans I have for my business, does it include five-year-old children in China and so on being treated like animals. All the kinds of plans we make, we must be very concerned to ask, does this in any way break God's will? Is this unrighteous in any way? Does this hinder my ability to love others? Does this hinder my ability to honor uh, my church, my family, uh, my friendships, my service to Christ? If I make this choice or decide upon this plan, 
Does it pull me away fully from the service of the Lord and give myself wholly to the service of mammon? And so on. Just honestly read God's word and ask for his spirit to enlighten his commandments. There's so many things people can choose that don't take stock of God's will in this way, his precepts. To marry someone who's not a Christian. To date someone who's not a Christian. To end, for most of your friends, to be ungodly who don't know Christ. And that's bad for you. That influences you. That's a a lifestyle choice that may need to be rethought and then changed. There's lots of things we do. You even ask things like, should I move to this place? Um, Should I take this job? Uh, Should I buy this? Should I send my children to that school? Um, should, should, should Should I be part of that church or this church? And we can be very rationalistic. Very natural and very fleshly minded without knowing it. Just viewing it the way anyone else would. Rather than bringing it all under God's light. And Christ and his demands of us to take up the cross and follow him and follow hard after him and be close to him. And I, just as you might say it's easy for a a pastor because any job he takes or any the things he's involved in always contain God. Not so. Not so. A pastor can just as easily go against God's will as anyone else. And we always just have to ask, will this bring me closer to the Lord? Will this benefit his kingdom? Will this destroy my children? Will it make them worldly? Will this relationship or friendship make me more godly? Or will it pull me down and make me more worldly? And so on. If the Lord wills, we will do these things. But we cannot ignore his precept will and then bow down in prayer piously and say, Lord, show me your will. Should I take this job? Lord, show me your will. Is, is this the church for me? And so on. We, we cannot be asking God to guide us if we're ignoring plain things he said. He says, serve Christ in his church. And we should not bow down and say, Lord, is it your will that I should love and serve the church? God will never answer that prayer. It's not really a prayer. It's more a resistance. Because it's clear in God's word what he requires of us in so many areas of our lives. And sometimes we hold back and we we bow down and we're seeking some kind of sign from God. And Jesus says to us, I've given you the signs. I've given you the signs. They're they're here. It says, do this, don't do this. Make sure this is involved in your decisions and so on. Here are the signs. And we may ask after that, when we know God's principles and we're, we're honoring them, then we can ask, Lord, in your providence, in your, in your governing of the desires of my heart, in the wise counsel of others, help me to see where I should go in this situation and what I should do. But the key is the godly person will say, if the Lord wills. They wouldn't just say it. It's, they're saying it because they think it, because they believe that. So it freely comes from their lips. And it's a real blessing when you hear people saying that. They say, well, if the Lord wills, we will ordain an elder. If, if the Lord wills, we will do this. If the Lord wills, the church will do this. 
giving God the honor. These people don't have that as part of their thinking. They're just naturally sinful uh, people. They have never come to know God in this way. And they just say, today or tomorrow we're going to do this. There's no mention that God even has a will. And you'll see um, how presumptuous it is. Today or tomorrow we will do such and such a thing. James says in verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow even contains. Or more literally, you do not know tomorrow. They say, powerful businessmen or politicians, they say, today or tomorrow we will do this. James says, you don't know anything about tomorrow at all. And the person will say, oh, I know that, but we need to have a plan. But James would say to them, you're not really taking stock of how ignorant you are about tomorrow. Everyone will admit, I don't really know what's going to happen to tomorrow. But they think they've got some control over it. They have some plan. It's usually self-centered. It's usually uh, to do with making their life better and their work better and their plans better, their lifestyle better, to make their family more happy. These are the things we'll do to achieve all of this. And James says, focus on today and put the eternal matters first. You don't know anything about tomorrow. In fact, as I said to you there, life depends upon God's will and is fragile. In fact, they don't even know that they will have a life tomorrow. You do not know tomorrow, verse 14, for what is your life It is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And you see how stark that is. We have lost this entirely from from culture, from the philosophy of our culture. It's gone, as it was in previous generations, but certainly in times where the church rode high and was full of the Spirit. And many of the pastors and men and women in those churches only lived until they were 30 and so on. We've lost this entirely. We have accepted and been contaminated entirely by the Spirit of the age in the Western world, which is that we will have a life tomorrow. And we will have a life next Friday. And we will have a life this February. And we will have a life next summer. And this is what we'll do. And it's, it's fine to have plans as long as we acknowledge God's sovereignty. But I don't think any of us are really making those plans, taking seriously God's sovereignty in that area, that we may not have a life. I think even as Christians, when we plan these things for next summer, we are planning in a very unbeliever-like way. That, that we don't really think at all that we may lose our life before that time comes. We are wrong. We think we are strong. We've been taught we're strong, that the hospital will help us, that the medicines will help us, that the police will arrive, that the fire department will arrive, that we will be safe, we will be protected, we will, the car will crash, but we'll be okay, and so on. But James says, if you actually think about it, God's blessed us in this age with that kind of preservation, but it can be taken away generally, and it certainly is taken away individually. And that's why people find death so shocking today, because there's so much there to preserve life, 
that when a death happens, it's unbearable upon the family and so on. It's unbearable because there's so much promise that the life will be preserved and protected. And God's blessed us with those medicines and so on. That's a blessing from God, but it has turned us into people that almost think we're immortal. What does James say? What is your life? Just a vapor. Verse 15. If the Lord wills, you can do this or that. No, he doesn't say that. I missed out an important phrase on purpose to see if you would notice. Does verse 15 say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that? No. James says, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Do you see how ungodly it is that we have become, even probably in the church of Christ, we have become verse 13 that presumes upon life when the truth, the refreshing truth from God is, he tells us the truth, verse 15, that life isn't guaranteed at all. To even have life this evening and to have life tomorrow morning is an immense preserving gift from God and we are not guaranteed it and though it may not touch us frequently in this gathering right now all around the nation this week there are couples and parents and families and work colleagues that are in a state of utter shock and despair because it did come near And they have tasted of that reality that happened this week, that many people in our nation have died. And it was not the Lord's will that they would live. The Lord wills that life begins on a date and it ends on a date. And it's set for me, you, and every person in this country. And when that date comes, it's not always given a lot of warning and time to prepare There's all kinds of things that take place and it comes and it is shocking. It unravels us because Satan has told this nation, you can have the the American dream. You can have the future, the house, the retirement, the plans, the travel. You can have it all. And God hasn't said that to us. And when death comes in to take us away, it is utter, it is a seismic shock today in our lives when that takes place. Let us give God the honor. Life is a gift, especially for sinners. The wages of sin. You know the answer. The soul that sins, Ezekiel says, it shall die. God placed that upon us at the beginning, at the fall. And it is a great gift and mercy that we are breathing and we are alive. That We are sinners who are alive. And we have an opportunity to put ourselves right with our maker. And to be reconciled to him through the gift of his son who died. And had a date, an appointment with death himself. An awful death that speaks to us of how awful death is. If the Lord wills, we will live tomorrow. And don't be afraid of that, dear Christian. As you look at 2020 and what might 
befall you in 2020 and what the doctors say and so on. Don't be afraid of that. If the Lord wills, you shall live. And when, if that day comes, let it come in the context of faith, that to depart with Christ is better, and that to pass in Christ from this world into the next is to receive life in a way that you never experienced in this world. Only then are we truly alive and sinless. And we have the joy of everlasting life. That is what awaits the Christian. If the Lord wills, we will live here. But don't, don't, don't um, be filled with terror, friend. When you love Jesus, don't be filled with that terror. Oh, death, where is your sting and victory? Only if he wills can we live. And that's because life is fragile. It depends upon his will to be sustained, but even in God's hand, life is fragile. James says it's a vapor. It's like a mist. It's, it's an image he uses, a, a, a mini parable here. That the mist arises in the morning, and there it is, and you see it, and it looks lovely, and it refracts it, the, the light, and so on, and it's pleasant upon the hills, but then in an hour it's gone. Just there, then it's gone. James says our lives are not hills, our lives are not trees, our lives are not mountains, our lives are the vapor that just, it just dispels so quickly, it is so fragile, it's like when we breathe in the cold and we see our breath and we say oh there's my breath and then it's gone. Before the eternal God and before world history and human history and church history, I am a vapor and you are a vapor. I am a momentary breath. As the church looks on from thousands of years and it looks at me or you, we're just, there we are and then we're gone. It is a vapor that appears for a moment. It feels substantial. It feels secure. It feels that it'll go on. We've still, we still retain the image of God that he created us to live and not to die. And that, that instinct is still strong in us. The instinct to live and not to die. And we look at our, our future and we look at who we're with and we look at our circumstances and we say, I will be here. It's instinctive. It looks so secure, but it's not. One illness one accident, just old age and deterioration and so on. The slightest thing can take us. It can take our wife. It can take our husband. It can take our child, our friend. The slightest thing. In God's inscrutable, ununderstandable sovereign will, we are not in control of it. The breath of you and the breath of the others who, whom you love, the breath is there and I have no control over it. It's by God's mercy if my wife lives. I have no control over it at all. God's inscrutable will may see in his eternal wisdom that there is much good to become from taking someone out of this world and removing them. And he doesn't warn us about it. Life is fragile, though it feels substantial. So live under his will and live knowing the fragility and respond to it 
at the beginning of this year. Plan as a fragile person and plan on the fragility of others. Don't spend all your time planning your summer vacation. Plan biblical things. Plan repentance. Plan nearness to Christ. Plan being ready for the coming of the Lord and so on. Plan those things first because we are fragile. Put them first. The Lord will bless you. The Lord will bless you in that. So it depends on his will and is fragile. Also, life is not only fragile. Life is the Lord's. It belongs to the Lord. James says, well, if the Lord wills, you will live and do this or that. It's the Lord that matters here. And the life you have is for the Lord. And those who are planning in this passage didn't plan for that. They say, we're going here. This is when we're going. My business will flourish. This is what I will do. I'll have the strength in life to do it. This is what the outcome will be. And then I'll come back and it will increase my life and my quality of life. And life will be better for me, my wife and my family because I've done all of this. Where's the Lord in it? The the Lord whose life it is and for whom the life exists. God didn't breathe life into us all and then walk away and say, I made you so you could interact with each other and the world and build Babylon in the world and live for man and yourself. It exists for him anyway. The letter to Hebrews says that God the Father is the Father of spirits, the Father of the breath, the giver of the breath. James here in his letter in chapter 1 says that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Verse 17. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And by his will he brought us forth by his word to be the first fruits of his creatures. God the Father is the giver of the breath. He breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. It belongs to him. It's his vapor and breath. Our bones and our muscles belong to him. We didn't make them. We don't own them. It all belongs to him. He gives and he takes away the breath. And the breath departs from us, Ecclesiastes says, and it returns to the God who gave it. If the Lord wills, we will live. But once we're living and we're breathing and our heart is beating, we don't just exist. The Lord wills that we live so that then we live for him. This life is the Lord's and they're making plans and it's got nothing to do with how God feels about it or for his glory or for his kingdom and so on. Life belongs to God. Any sinner must reckon with that. That's the only thing that accounts. You cannot learn everything else that's written in any book in human history and still be saved if you know that. All the rest is dispensable. But you are a sinner made by God, accountable to him. And his breath is, your breath is owned by him. And all that matters is that you with your breath and your energy, first of all, make yourself right with him, turn to him, repent, turn from your sin, 
uh, receive the sacrifice of his son, receive the righteousness of his son that he's given, the remedy for your sin to atone and cleanse you from your sin. That, that, that's it. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But we must go to God and know God and have eternal life, which is to know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Verse 13 has nothing of that in it like it does in our culture and so many millions of people. These poor people that have swallowed a lie. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a place. No, it should say, today I will turn to the Lord and turn from all my sin and have my guilt cleansed and receive his son and hear the gospel and appreciate the gospel And then take up my cross and live for this God who made me. These people say nothing like that. They don't acknowledge that God's given them breath. And what it is today, friends, from the top to the bottom, from the president downwards to the person working in the cafe, to the person in the projects, to the, to the person in, in gangs, to the, the person in suburbia who's got a beautiful house and their lawn is perfect. And their house is perfect. And today and tomorrow, if you knocked on their door today and said, what are you doing today? They tell you what they're doing today. And tomorrow, what are you doing? Tomorrow, this is what I am doing. And God's in none of it. Christ is in none of it. Sin is in none of it. Repentance is in none of it. The gospel has found no place in that life. They bow to the idol of mammon. And the gospel is nowhere to be seen. Let us not behave like them. Don't let your neighbors or your friends or your colleagues look at you and think that that's what you are. That those are the things that matter. We're the same. We have so much in common. They should never be able to turn to you and say, we have so much in common. What fellowship hath light with darkness? What fellowship can a sin-purging gospel have with a life lived for things? There can be no fellowship between these two things. Life belongs to God and it belongs to Christ, who is life. And does Christ say, Plan what you wear. Make the purchases. Make the house perfect. Succeed in your job. Become the owner of the company. And so on. Does Christ say that? No. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Christ expects. They're living for things, plans, profits, success, lifestyle increase. Comfort, luxury, pleasure, status. And Christ had none of it himself. And he tells us, don't take anything to do with that really. Certainly not let it be your reason for pursuit and your reason for living. Life belongs to Christ. Not just as he calls unbelievers, but you and I, if we're stepping over the line into that lifestyle and that way of thinking, Christ says, think You know the basics. There's nothing complicated. Think, I purchased you. I redeemed you. You don't belong to the world. You belong to me. And you are not to serve the world. But I have a kingdom. 
The devil shows you the kingdoms of this world, but I have a kingdom. That kingdom has prayer, gospel sharing, worship, witnessing to to the unbeliever. The prosperity of the church is what matters, not your house, the church. All that matters is if the church prospers. It doesn't matter if I prosper or you prosper. All that matters is if the church prospers. Jesus lives for this and he he fills that with his grace. He works on that and he's looking for his people to serve him in that. I redeemed you. Love not the world. We heard that a few weeks ago. Love not the world or the things in the world, but the love of the Father and his uh, things. How often the Lord warns us about this. And those profound words that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 when he mentions the sacrifice of Christ and he says that you should no longer live for yourselves for you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And those words need inscribed on the brick of our churches and in our homes and in our minds. Do you think about it at all? The world isn't saying that. It wouldn't tell you that. And maybe you don't say it. And I don't say it enough. Think about the implications. You're making plans. You want to better yourself and better your circumstances and all these things. And Paul says to you, you are not your own. You say, oh, but it's my choice. It's not. You can make it your choice. You can yank it from the hand of Christ and make it your choice and the consequences will come. But it's not your choice. And you, it's not even that the things in your life aren't your own. You don't even own you. You exist for another reason. He redeemed you for those things. That's the reason you're alive and that you're not in hell. That's why the gospel exists. You you exist to glorify Christ, to give him your time, your love, your service. You are a servant. Servants don't wander around the kingdom saying, the kingdom exists for me and here's the the little plot I've made on it. The, the The servants serve the king. They exist for the king. Life is the Lord's. It is God's who gives the breath. And it is Christ's for the believer. For he paid for you and redeemed you that you would not live in any sense for yourself. So give yourself in the year to those things. Give yourself to them. Account for his sovereign will and his commands and your fragility but don't remain neutral give yourself to the Lord whose life it actually is and just look at the year to come and compare it to this one and and say these things to yourself how will my prayer life be different how will my communion with Christ be different how will my growth in my knowledge of Jesus my understanding of him and the depth of it, how will it grow compared to last year? Did I pursue it enough? 
understanding him, reading about him, hearing him. Christian friendship and fellowship. What's, how can I compare the year to come to the one that's just passed? What needs to change? Where am I not being obedient? What have I missed? What have I done? What is the condition of the grace and love that Christ has planted in my heart to love the brethren and to love the Lord and love his people uh, and to love God? How are those things in my heart? Give yourself to those things. The godly planner plans to become holy. The godly planner plans to extend the kingdom. The godly planner loves the Lord and Ask the Lord, how can I most effectively exhaust myself this year in your service? The ungodly planner says, I have a plan for my life and my business and my situation, and it will take such and such an amount of time. Here are the profits that will come from it, and I might squeeze in a couple of things that are pious in the midst of it. I hope you can see these are two radically different ways of living. Lastly, life is short it is fragile it belongs to the Lord and it's short now we saw this with how fragile it is the vapour is fragile it's not a substantial thing it will just dissipate but James points out how quickly that happens a vapour that appears for a little time and then literally disappears that's the words he uses it appears for a little time then it disappears And the word there for little, it means kind of puny, just so so small, just maybe the English word would be tiny. It appears for a tiny time and then vanishes away. That is solemn. We can't look at this new year as Christians without taking stock of just how short life is. Not just that it's fragile and it could be taken away in that sense, but we just don't know how long it is. And overall, compared to God and history and so on, it's tiny anyway. So we should try and use it as much as possible just for Christ. You can't say to Christ, "Um, my my life's long. I still have probably 30 years. So um, at this stage of my life, I'm going to do this. And when I have more time at that age, then I will... That is, that is, that's crazy. That's crazy planning from a Christian. God thunders to us here and says, your life is very short, so use it very wisely. Job said in our reading, it's swifter than the weaver shuttle, which when the weaver is pulling the cord and so on, that shuttle is just going rapidly as it weaves the garment. And Job uses that as a picture of how his days are just passing <clears throat> like that. You think you have so many of them and you make plans and so on, but some of these days, as you know, they just come in and they go, and then they're gone. And we, we excuse ourselves and say, well, I couldn't have done more, or and we try and reason with ourselves so that we can sleep that night. But the, the truth is we, we, we can waste days we, or, or waste months and not really progress at all in Christ and for him. Our days are like that weaver shuttle. So the point here is when something's short, that should make us urgent about it. If you were told that the person you loved had a week to live, how urgent you would be 
to find some kind of remedy, to focus in on the situation. Well, you don't need to be told that someone you love has a short time. Or that someone you love has a disease and the time is short. You have a disease and so do I. And all of our time is short. We're all sick. We're all aging. And the time is short. How, how urgent we are for these obvious things. And it shows how unspiritual we are. We're urgent about that, but not urgent about ourselves at all. This great, inestimable gift of health and life that can be used for God. We fritter it away on certain things and whatever. The time is short like a weaver's shuttle and there's only one of them. Only one life. You can't try this and then, like, like if you're learning carpentry or you're learning some element of business and be trained at it and get it wrong several times like a driving lessons. You, you don't get several shots at this and the next time you can do it better. This is it. The wide gate is there, the narrow gate is there, and this is it. Everything we think and do has an eternal consequence. And there's so little time to put it all right. How urgent I must be and you must be. That it's short because the Lord is coming. The Lord who wills here, he says... Uh, Later in chapter 5, be patient, establish your hearts, verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's short in itself, and it's short because the Lord is urgently coming. Christ always says that, how to be urgent about his coming, be watchful. It'll just come upon you. Um, The coming of Jesus, you may say, well, I don't believe it will come for at least another hundred years because these prophecies and so on haven't been fulfilled. But the Lord comes to us one way or the other. When the coming of the Lord is urgently upon our short life, we should think of it this way, that he'll either come and take us tomorrow, we'll die. He'll come and take us, or he will come from glory. Christ will appear, and that will be it. But one way or the other, we're near it. It's short. We're very near the coming of the Lord. Never far away from it. We never think it will happen. And if he comes and takes me, then I, even if I'm taken to glory, I can't say, well, there are these certain things I, I wish I'd done. I really regret the fact that I left that undone and so on. Can, can, I, have, can I have a chance to put it right? No, when... When he comes and takes you, that's it. So if you're living right now, not doing what you ought to be doing, or living in a way that's not including him in the right way, living in a way that's like relaxed and you're not taking stock of how important it is and how urgent these matters are in his kingdom, you have a very relaxed, kind of uncommitted relationship to his kingdom. You know, you have some friends that are very close and then there are other friends that they're just acquaintances and maybe your attitude to doing something for Christ is kind of like that. Oh, I see that person now and again and that's a nice person, but I'm, I'm not really committed to them. And maybe your view of serving Christ is that way and you're just, you have this, there's no urgency at all. Asleep. Five virgins asleep. No oil. And then the master comes and there's no time to put the oil in and so on. Urgency. 
he will take us in death or he will come in his glory as he's promised. And he, may, he leaves us in no doubt, I'm just closing here, he leaves us in no doubt that when he actually comes in death or he comes in his second coming, there is no time to, to say, I'll get this done before he actually comes. He says, if you've left your coat in the house, don't go up and get it. If, if you've left something, then don't, don't go and get it. For the coming of the Lord, one will be grinding, two will be grinding in a field, one taken, the other one left. That's it. Two friends, a church congregation, a husband and a wife, two grinding. One is just taken and the other one left, and that's it. Two in a bed, one taken, the other one left. He comes and that's it. There is no time. And we just don't take stock of it. We just don't think about his coming. We don't take it seriously. We don't talk about today as though he may come. We don't talk about next week as though he may come. And you say, but I'm a, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. Well, why, why is it not important to you that he may just suddenly come upon us? How important these things are. And he comes with a suddenness. James says, the judge is at the door. The time is near. The day is at hand. He is standing at the door, James says. The Lord, the judge, is standing at the door. How solemn. Well, what is your life? What kind of life is it? And what is your plan for this year? Are you going to plan like verse 13? As a Christian man or woman or business person or family, are you going to plan that way and call it Christian? Or are you going to plan according to verse 15? And will you strive to know better and with more power that your life is very fragile, that God's will for your life stands there and you must seek it above all other things? Are you going to look at this year and says, every day belongs to Christ in this year and I will pursue him as my ultimate end and his service and his kingdom? And will you look at this year and say, my life is short and it finishes so quickly and I don't know when that will happen. That we don't have all the time in the world at all. That is a lie from Satan. How will you plan this year knowing that your life is a vapor? Amen. May the Lord impress upon us in our hearts his word and may we put all of these things into practice.